0: Second Timothy chapter number 2, 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. We'll read just seven verses. This is probably quite familiar to you. If you're a student of the Bible, this is not unfamiliar territory. Paul writing to the young preacher Timothy says this, thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for letting us be in the house of God. Help us tonight as we study your word to have a right understanding of it, Lord, and and a proper application in our hearts and lives. And may it stir us to a more devoted and closer walk with you, Lord. Thank you for the faithfulness of these that are here. Pray that you just minister to their hearts, bless them, and honor their obedience in being here tonight. And we'll be sure to thank you for it, Lord. We love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, speaking of our Apollos course, and uh, we we titled, you know, we're studying through the book of Jude. The book of Jude uh, is uh, the smallest book in the in the New Testament, uh, and and studying through the book of Jude, it, it's interesting. The title we gave to it was the preamble of the end times. Uh, It is not by accident that the book of Jude stands, almost as one commentator said it, in the vestibule of the apocalypse. As God's people are standing on the brink of of the coming of the Lord Jesus, uh, the uh, book of Jude is given to us to remind us of our responsibilities in these days And as we stand facing a world that seems to be unraveling around us, how we can be anchored in the truth of Christ and how we ought to behave and respond in that environment. Now, you're probably thinking, preacher, that's good. I I didn't come Monday night, but thanks for the update. But here's why I say that this evening is because in many ways, the book of Second Timothy serves a similar purpose. Uh, The Apostle Paul knows that his time uh, to depart is at hand. He knows he doesn't have many days left. And he writes to this young man, Timothy, whom he calls his son. Now, we know that he was not the biological son of Timothy, but he calls him his son in the faith. uh, Someone that he had won to Christ, someone that he had discipled, someone whose life he had invested into. And here's the aged apostle. He knows he's not going to be around much longer. And he sees the storm clouds of apostasy gathering all around the horizon. He begins to see compromise and lukewarmness in the church. He begins to see persecution rearing its head in the Roman Empire. And his heart is burdened for this young man that is going to outlive him and is going to have to live through many of these things that he is now seeing come to pass. And so Paul takes pen in hand and writes to this young man, and he wants to encourage him about living in these days. He'll go on in chapter number three to say this, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. He says that men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And he tells him from such, you need to turn away, Timothy. In other words, he sees these dark clouds on the horizon. And he wants to ready Timothy for living during these times. And in similar fashion, you know, listen, when Paul talks about the last days, I mean, he was living in the last days. And if Paul was in the last days, where does that leave us? Man, we're not just in the last days. We're in the last of the last days. We're in the latter part. On God's calendar. I mean at any moment. The Lord could break forth. To come back for his bride. And as we live in this world. uh, the, The note that Paul continuously rings out here. Is that God's people need to be strong. They need to resolve themselves. They need to steal their mind and they need to prepare themselves for living in these days. I wonder if part of the reason we see so much defection and abandonment in Christianity today is because God's people are not taking the advice that Paul gave. Not readying themselves, not preparing themselves, not mentally preparing themselves to face the things that are about them. I mean, listen, there's a reason God warns us of these days. There's a reason the Bible goes out of its way to remind us that these days are coming. And that's because God doesn't want you or I caught flat footed by a world that is spiraling further into depravity. And so Paul writes these things. I've got this thought on my heart tonight. Strength in these last days. What do you and I as God's people need to maintain our testimony, to maintain our sanity, to be living for the Lord, to be productive and honoring to Christ in these last days? And I think this passage gives us some information about what we need. Now, it breaks itself down into three portions. Verses 1 through 3, we find a word of exhortation. And then verses 4 through 6, we have a word of illustration. Paul's going to use some word pictures to show us some things about how we are to live. And then verse 7 is a word of instruction. A personal note that Paul sounds about how Timothy is to respond to these things. Notice with me first this word of exhortation. Verse number 1. He says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace... That is in Christ Jesus and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, this isn't part of my notes, but I just want to mention it. You notice that all the instruction that Paul gives here is all directed to the believer. He doesn't say go fix everybody else. He says tend to your own home fire. Uh, Again, we live in a world, and I mentioned this on Monday night, we live in a world where the superhero of the day is the activist, the person that goes out and purposes to resolve and fix every injustice in society and straighten everything out and topple systems and turn over conventions and all this worldly concept and worldly construct. But you know, the perspective of the believer is not, I'm going to go out and fix everything wrong in the world. Now, certainly the gospel of Jesus Christ has the capacity to fix any problem In a person's life. But the picture that's painted for us of these last days is not one of of ushering in the kingdom of Christ through sweeping revival. But rather it's that as the world continues to decline and degrade, that God's people remain salt and light, a testimony and a witness in this wicked world. He says, thou, therefore, and he says it twice, thou, therefore. And listen, for far too long as Christians, we've had our, our perspective on them instead of thou. On those outside and how we need to try to legislate and how we need to try to petition and how we need to try to cajole this society into being something that resembles Bible Christianity when the reality is only the gospel of Jesus Christ can transform a person's heart and life. There's no other amount. And listen, I think we ought to have godly laws. I'd sure rather have godly ones than ungodly ones. But let us not fool ourselves into believing that 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 outward perspective, not of the sharing of the gospel, but of the trying to straighten out society is going to bear any fruit. No, rather, he says, thou, therefore, he says, Timothy, you're not going to change everything around you, but you and you alone control yourself. So he says, thou, therefore, and he gives him three things that he ought to be doing in these last days. He exhorts him, number one, to be strong. Verse one, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You know, there's strength in grace, grace being God's unmerited faith, uh, God's riches at Christ's expense, the privileged position that we enjoy, not due to our own ability or righteousness, but rather due to the secure position we have in Jesus Christ. There's strength in that reality. When Christians lose sight of who they are in Christ, they become anemic in their spiritual vigor. Uh, When they begin to appropriate onto their own shoulders and their own energy and their own strength, all of the burdens of life, it begins to weigh them down. But the more we recognize that whatever we are, we are by the grace of God, the more we find strength to face the things around us. And here's what he tells them. He says, here's what you need in these days. You've got to be strong. Uh, We live in a society today that seems to have a warped perspective of the idea of strength and the conventional notions of strength and being strong or something that is criticized and criminalized and vilified in these days. But I'll tell you this, man, if we're going to live and have a testimony for Christ, it's going to take strength. I don't mean strength in a physical sense. I don't even necessarily mean strength in an emotional sense. But I mean strength in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It will take spiritual strength. This is not a day for weak Christianity. You're going to have to stay close to the Lord. You're going to have to lean upon him. You're going to have to draw your strength from the word of God by living in it daily, reading it daily, believing it in a practical and meaningful sense in your life. I wonder how rare it is in our lives that anything in this book even nudges us in a particular direction. We're going to have to be strong in these last days. So he he, he exhorts them to be strong. Verse number two, he says this. The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You know, one of the things I love about this passage, he doesn't tell him to throw in the towel and wait for the trumpet. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm waiting for the appearing of God's son from heaven. I'm living in anticipation of the Lord coming back. But one of the beautiful, elegant, exquisite things in the way that God has constructed the eminence of the return of Christ is that scripturally speaking, it could be any moment before I finish my sentence, But scripturally speaking, it could be another 30 years. It could be another hundred years. It could be another thousand years. God never confines himself and says it must be at this time. And here's what it's done for believers that trust and believe and, and accept the truth, the word of God. It has left us in a state of constant readiness, but constant engagement as well. He doesn't say just throw in the towel and sit back and wait for the trumpet. He says, Timothy, here's what you ought to be doing. You ought to be training other men who, if the Lord tarries when you're gone, can carry on the work. We could say it this way. This was, of course, the life calling upon Timothy. He was a pastor. And so we could summarize it or boil it down, distill it in Paul saying, Timothy, don't give up. Keep serving. Keep serving. So we could say it this way. He exhorts him, number one, be strong. Number two, be serving. Don't be idle. Don't think that the imminent return of Jesus Christ is any excuse for us to kick our feet up and, 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 you know, sort of relinquish our vigor and our passion to a sort of fatalism and finalism. Man, there's too much of that in the church in these days of, well, we're just holding out and hanging on and waiting it out. And that's never the disposition that God's people are to have. We're told to occupy till he comes. And that word occupy is a military word. To occupy means to dwell there at full attention and with full force. Not to, uh, you know, pacify till he comes, but to occupy till he comes. Not to stagnate, uh, not, not to idle, but rather to occupy. So he tells them, listen, be serving God. And great discontentment comes in the life of the believer through idleness. I can say that a great many times in my life that the worst decisions that I've made have been during idle seasons. And that does not mean that busyness for the sake of busyness is noble, but it does mean that this idle mentality and spirit of, well, you know, I'll just sit back and kick back and there's other people who serve God, there's other people who witness, there's other people who give out tracts, there's other people who will testify for the Lord. That sort of disposition always leads to dangerous situations. So uh, he exhorts them, number one, be strong. Number two, be serving. But then notice number three. He says, thou therefore, verse three, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. We could say this. Be steadfast. Don't give up. I'll tell you, giving up is epidemic. It's all over society today in every way, shape, fashion and form. I've been reading these articles here lately. I try not to read the news, but sometimes I do. And then I get angry and then I swear it off and then. I do, and, you know, you're you're just like me. But I've been reading about this concept and this phrase that they're calling quiet quitting. Have you heard of this, quiet quitting? Quiet quitting is where people keep going to work, they just quit trying. I've known people that were Olympic champions at quiet quitting. But they described how that since COVID, much of the inefficiency in the society because of rampant inflation, people feel like they're not getting paid a fair wage any longer. And then, to be honest, a lot of people just got comfortable with a dialed back expectation on their workload. And, and then, oftentimes, people move to different fields, and so that created turnover in, in jobs and environments. People are being trained all sorts of things in such a disruptive environment that a lot of people at a workplace they're going, they're putting on the smock, they're clocking in. They're standing at the counter, but they just don't care. Have you experienced that? Boy, I have. Everywhere I go, I, I mean, it's it's shocking. It's startling the degree to where, in in public life, you go and how little people care about the service and the job that they provide. For you, but you know, the real tragedy is not that that exists in the devil's people. I mean, they have no, no sense of propriety about why they do what they do. You know, the sad truth is there's a lot of quiet quitting in Christianity too. People just laying down, giving up, quitting. And here's what we need in these days. We don't need to give out or give up. A lot of us are resolved not to give in. We're not going to change what we believe. But we've allowed ourselves to give up and we've allowed ourselves to give out. We've allowed ourselves to not maintain the stand and the steadfastness that God has expected of us. So he, he's exhorting him. He's saying, Timothy, don't give up. And I will say that, and you've probably experienced this, certainly if you've been in church any amount of time. I mean, you've heard me say this, church is like a Greyhound bus station. Somebody's always getting on, somebody's always getting off. And no doubt in your Christian life, there are myriads of names of people you could list that at one time were right there beside you and no longer are. He's reminding Timothy that's something that you're going to have to expect, son. You're going to have to know that that's going to happen. He talks about it in the uh, prior chapter in verse number 15. He says, this thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Paul says there's people have walked away. There's people have given up. Demas wasn't the only one that forsook him. There were a thousand Demases in Paul's life. And so with a burden heart, he's saying, whatever you do, Timothy, endure hardness. Don't give in. Don't give up. Keep serving God. It's a reminder that we are going to face hardness. And if, uh, if, if in Christianity, if you signed up because you thought it was easy street, I'm sorry, some TV preacher lied to you. But the reality is living for Christ will invariably face opposition and affliction at times. And we have to make up our mind, man. Are we in this thing to stroke our ego and to lay us up in the lap of luxury? Or are we in this thing to honor Christ? If you think Christianity is supposed to be easy, and I don't mean in regards to believing on Christ and receiving salvation. I like how Lester Olof, you say it. He, you say, it won't cost you anything to get saved. But it'll cost you everything to live like a saved person should. And certainly in our lives, if we're going to stand for Christ, we're going to have to face some hardness. What are we going to do in the face of that? Well, we can abdicate, we can abandon, we can forsake, or we can do what Paul exhorts him to do. He says, endure. So we see a word of exhortation, and then verses four, five, and six, we have a word of illustration. And Paul's going to give us three pictures, three portraits that convey important truths that you and I need to understand in these days that we're living in. Notice the first one in verse four. He says, "No man that warreth entangleth himself." with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. The first lesson he gives, we could call it a lesson from the battlefield. And he points to the soldier. And this is the overarching truth he wants him to understand. It's a truth about being singularly focused in your life. Notice the distractions that derail the soldier that he mentions in the beginning of verse 4. He says, no man that worth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life man there's nothing i hate worse than getting tripped up i've got boys at home and and people just keep buying them stuff and and so there's stuff everywhere and i know people do it because they love them and they're wanting to love on them and i appreciate that but i don't know how my insurance company feels about it because sometimes walking through the house is like walking through a minefield and i've got legos permanently embedded in the soles of my feet and things like that and uh But there's nothing I hate worse than getting tangled up. And, you know, invariably, when people get entangled, they don't have the intention to get entangled. A person that gets entangled is probably deliberately on the move somewhere and has a will and a purpose and a drive about where they're going. But because of carelessness, they allow things that are lower than them, of lesser importance than what they were seeking to do in the first place, to wrap themselves around them and prevent them and restrain them from doing what they originally intended. Man, if ever there was a picture of where believers are at in our day, this has to be it. There's a lot of folks that want to serve God and they will tell you, Preacher, I want to serve God, but whatever you're about to say after that, but you're saying is more important than serving God. I think we all understand. I'm sure you do. And and I understand this to be true, that we all sometimes wish we could serve God in a greater capacity than we are equipped to do for or than God providentially allows us to. But we need to be honest enough to recognize that a lot of the things that we let stop us are really of lesser quality and lesser caliber the soldier if he's going to be effective he cannot stake himself down he has to be willing to go where the battle is he has to be willing to march where the war takes place and all of those things in his life are going to derail that purpose and likewise for you and I as a believer man we're on the march We're not to be driving our tent stakes down in this life. We're to be where God desires for us to be serving him. We see the distractions that derail the soldier, but then we see the devotion that drives the soldier. Why would the soldier jettison those things? Here's why. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. We could use the word commander. That's probably a pretty good generic term. Sweeping in whatever station that this particular soldier that Paul has in mind may have been. Whoever this soldier's commander is, is his sun, moon and stars. All that matters is what the commander thinks. It's his whole world. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. All that matters is that the commander be pleased. I'll tell you this in our lives the thing that is going to finally divorce us from the petty things that keep us from doing something for God is devotion and love for Jesus Christ. Until we love Him more, we're always going to be tangled up. Until we love Him most, we're always going to be held back. It's not guilt that does this. Uh, It's not peer pressure that does this. Uh, It is not coercion that does this. But it is this and this alone, love and affection for the Commander. Till we love Him the way we ought to love Him, we're always going to let things hold us back. By the same token, you say, Preacher, I want to do more for God, but this and but this and but that and but this. How do I remedy that? Well, you need to spend time with Him. And the more you spend time with Him, I have no doubt about this, the more time you spend with Him, the more you're going to fall in love with Him. You'll find him more precious. You'll find him uh, more necessary and vital in your life. So first is a lesson from the battlefield about being singularly focused. And then look at verse five. He says this, if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. We could say this is a lesson from the athletic field. And Paul has in mind the Olympian, the athlete who is running a race, who is uh, taking his, his, his path down a course. And what is his overall purpose here? We could give this singular thought. The first one is about being singularly focused on the battlefield. But on the athletic field, he's talking about being scrupulously disciplined. Notice how he says this. If a man also strive for masteries, that word masteries has to do with with uh, appointments or or applaud or the praise of men. It carries with it the idea of the laurel that would be crowned on the champion at the ancient Olympic Games. And he, he has in mind this man that's that's striving, that's running this race because he seeks to win a crown. You and I, and there's a lot of reasons we ought to be serving the Lord, but it is certainly biblical to mention and to understand there's coming a day He's going to give crowns for the way that we've lived. Now, you might say, "Why, well, preacher, that's silly. Why would I want a crown? I love Him more than I love the crown. But you know, in the book of Revelation, there's passage that talks about God's people taking those crowns and throwing them at His feet. And it's not the crown itself that you would want, but rather it's the privilege and the honor of being able to take that which represents the labor of your life and lay it at his feet in affection and devotion. So what's Paul dealing with here? Well, notice there's two thoughts. Number one, he talks about this man and his vigorous running. He says that he strives for masteries. The word strive denoting the idea of labor and exertion uh, of intense participation. And the man that he has in mind is not lazy and he is not absent. He is a man that is giving his entire best for this cause. I would say certainly we ought to be that way. We ought to leave nothing in the tank. We ought to give everything to Christ. No half measures, man. I was talking to somebody on Sunday. We was talking about things God was doing in their life. And and I looked at him. I said, you know, there's no half measures. Uh, half measures kill Christianity and they kill our Christian walk. No half measures, no half in and half out. If there was one truth that Christ always communicated regarding discipleship, be it in various forms, but the truth was always the same, it was that there are no half measures. No man putting his hand to the plow and looking back, uh, you've got to be willing to follow him. You've got to forsake all over and over again. Christ communicate that there's no half measures in discipleship. And this man has no half measures. He is running or striving the way that an athlete should. But there is something wrong. Verse number five says this. If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Now, we would be tempted to. Uh, when we hear the word law associated with the Old Testament law. But Paul writing in this illustration, speaking about athletics and particularly in the Roman world, and then writing to Timothy, undoubtedly when he speaks of lawfulness, he's not speaking about the Old Testament Levitical law, but rather he's talking about the rules and regulations of the race or of the contest that this man's participating in. And he's saying this, he can run hard as he wants. But if you don't stay between the lines, it don't mean anything. We live in a world of opportunism and pragmatism. Where, uh, you know, numbers reign supreme. Where, you know, it, it's, it's all about fruit and not faithfulness. It's all about results and not righteousness. And, and Christianity has been distilled down to just sheer marketing and numbers and, and, and raw politic. But when you look at Christianity in the New Testament... It is equally as important. Nay, I'd say it's more important that what we be doing be honoring to the Lord as it is that it be effective regarding visible fruit. And Here's what he's saying in our life. It's all good to run. It's all good to run hard. It's all good to strive. But you better make sure that you're striving in the way that the master wants you to. Often in our lives, we we <laughs> at least I do anyways, I'm the type of person that I move before I've looked. I talk before I've thought. That's just me, and and it's part of the burden that I bear in being me and that some of y'all bear in having to deal with me. And so often it is so easy to get so wrapped up in the vigor of doing something for God that we never even stop to ask if God wants it done for him in the first place. And in your life and in my life, whatever we call Christianity is of no value and merit if it's not sanctioned by the Christ of Christianity. It may represent, it may may shadow, it, it may imitate what Bible Christianity looks like, but if it's not rooted in and driven by the authority and direction of Christ and our devotion to Him, then it is of no value. We see this man's vigorous running, but we see that it was vain running. What was his goal? Well, if his goal was simply to win, he won. If his goal was to look the best, he probably looked the best. But if his goal was to get the crown, then it was all to no avail if he didn't run lawfully. So there's a lesson from the athletic field about being scrupulously disciplined. And then look at verse 6. He says, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Here we have a lesson from the harvest field. And he has in mind, he uses the word husbandman, a farmer, a gardener, someone that is laboring. And in this particular context, uh, someone that has planted an orchard, someone that uh, has fruit trees and someone that is laboring in the field. And here is the truth he wants to communicate. It's about being spiritually nourished. He says, you know, the husbandman, if he's going to labor, he's going to have to partake in his own fruits first. What is he dealing with? Well, you think about the illustration here and you think about the words. For a person to go out and plant a field, there's two things fundamentally that they're going to need. Number one, they're going to need strength. A person can have all of the utensils, all of the implements, all of the necessary supplies. But if they lack the strength to go out and work the ground, then it's all to no avail. He's reminding them that it's all good and well to serve God. But you can't serve God if you don't have the strength from the Lord to serve God in the first place. He's warning against burnout. He's warning against operating in the strength of your own flesh. And he's reminding you that that farmer, if he's going to bear more fruit, he's going to have to eat of the fruit before he can, in other words, the very thing that we seek to do in changing the world in, in opening people's eyes to the grace of Jesus Christ in sharing the gospel in trying to show them that they can partake in him and how precious that he truly if we're going to do that, we're going to have to be seeing to our own spiritual nourishment and strength to have the strength to do it. Uh, it's not enough, and I've seen this happen throughout years in ministry, where people get so focused on laboring that they're never fed, and they never spend time with the Lord, and all of those things fall to the wayside, and invariably, it always ends in in heartache, in, in misery, in burnout, sometimes in anger and abuse. And why'd that happen? Well, because the husbandman wasn't partaking in the fruits, and he got too weak. You know, worst thing you can do is be weak when you're when you work in weakness, you work dangerously. You risk harming others around you. He talks about the source of his strength, but then there's a second thing the farmer needs. The farmer needs seed. It's all good and well if he has all of the, the implements and, and, and if he has the strength and if he has the gumption and the know, no, you know, the, the wherewithal and, and the knowledge and all of these things. But if he doesn't have anything to plant, then he's not going to be very fruitful in the first place. Uh, we nowadays get a seed catalog or you can go online and order stuff or you can go down Knoxville Seed if you're going to put a garden out or go down to the co-op or the Mayo and you can buy seed. But in this day, if a man was going to have seed, if he couldn't go and buy it from someone else, uh, he would get that initial seed and he would plant a crop. But then at the end, he would take some of that seed and preserve it. Why? Because there had to be a future crop that came from it. In other words, he wouldn't have that which he needed to to give to the ground back unless he took first of it unto himself. I would say in our uh, spiritual life, if we're going to minister, and of course the immediate context here is a preacher preaching the word of God, but it's not just for the preacher, it's for any of us. I guarantee you, you have opportunities day by day to witness to people that you work with, to talk to people around you, to share the gospel. And that'll be of, of no value and of no impact if we're not in the book ourselves. We find in this passage a word of exhortation and a word of illustration. But then notice verse 7, there's a word of instruction. I want to say just a couple things about it and, and then close because I love the way that Paul says this. You can really sense the, the, the fatherly tenderness in the way that he says this to Timothy. It's something that I could hear my father saying to me. It's something I could imagine me saying to my boys. After he gives them this truth. And and you could imagine he looks, looks straight in Timothy's eye. And says listen. Consider what I say. And the Lord give the understanding in all things. He wants two things for Timothy. And here's what we ought to desire out of the message tonight. Number one. That it be properly apprehended. It says, consider what I say. Think about it. Think about it in your life. Think about what's present. Think about what's lacking. No preaching of the word of God has ever helped someone through a speculative attitude. One of the great dangers in being a pastor and preaching the Word of God on a regular basis is you develop a speculative, theoretical, and academic relationship to the preaching of the Word of God. And I gotta be honest with you, it's something that when I hear preaching, I have to, I have to try to jerk a knot in myself and remind myself, I'm not here to critique and scrutinize this as a, as a homiletic creation. I'm here to hear the voice of God in this. Likewise, if you've grown up in church and if you've listened to a lot of preaching, if you sat in these pews for a lot of years, you know, it is all too easy to just tune out. It's all too easy to be familiar with the passage. Well, I know what's getting ready to be said. It's all too easy to space out of what God is seeking to do. But here's what he wants. He's saying, I want you to listen carefully. Properly apprehend this truth. Understand this. Consider it in your life. And then there's a second thing. He says this, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Now, I don't really think what Paul's saying in the verses previous to this are all that complicated. I don't think when he says the Lord give the understanding in all things that he's saying, well, I hope the Lord makes sense out of that. Sometimes I pray that way when I preach. <laughs> I hope Lord makes sense out of that. But I don't think that's what Paul's saying. I think what he's saying, particularly in that context and in that time, Timothy reading, it would have been plain enough. Here's what I think he's saying when he says the Lord give the understanding in all things. And it dovetails with the prior verse. He's saying, I'm asking the Lord to show you where this is needed in your life. You know, I've said this many times and no doubt you have a similar experience. I was raised hearing the gospel. I think there's probably very few people that receive Christ the first time they hear the gospel. I'm sure it does happen. Uh, but the biblical model is that one plants and other waters and then God gives the increase. And I know in my life, man, there was a lot of watering done. I was raised in a Bible believing church. I was raised here in the gospel every single week. I was raised like many of our kids are here in children's church, children's ministry, youth group, all these things. I was raised in a Christian school where we had chapel twice a week and Bible school, Bible class on the days we didn't have chapel. I heard, I mean, my whole life when I was 10 years old, the spirit of God spoke to my heart. And gave me understanding in that matter. And I don't mean that he revealed some glorious secret truth to me. I mean he spoke my heart and said. You know Toby that really is true. You've never been saved. And you really would die and go to hell. If you died right now. In other words he personally applied that truth in my life. And again I think so often. It's tempting to have a speculative academic relationship with the word of God. But Paul like a tender father. He says, Timothy, I'm praying the Lord's going to show you where you need this in your life. I don't know about you, man. I need this in my life. And I wonder if you're honest enough, humble enough, sincere enough to be willing to invite the Holy Ghost to say whatever needs to be said to you, to take these truths and to give you understanding in all things in your life. I know I need it in my life. I trust you do as well. And my heart and prayer for you is just as Paul's was for Timothy. Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Let's bow together tonight. As a musician comes to play, the altar is open, and if God spoke to your heart about some matter, uh, it must be pretty important. He wouldn't do that for no reason. He he wouldn't waste his time, but he wouldn't waste your time either. So if the Holy Ghost stirred your heart about a matter, won't you respond in obedience to the Lord tonight? Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name with our